0: Before we get started with this episode of the Artists and Emotions podcast, I want to give a little bit of a trigger warning. This episode contains subject matter such as depression, deep depression, struggling when you feel like the entire world is against you, and feeling like you are all alone in the world, and what you can do to remedy that situation. If you are not comfortable listening to subject matter like this, or you feel it may trigger you in some way, I do not recommend listening to this episode of the podcast but without any further ado, let's get started. Welcome to the Artists and Emotions podcast. I'm your host Cody Alexander Curtis, and to say that I'm excited about our guest today would be a little bit of a little bit of an understatement. I'm very excited even though I've only known this individual for a very relatively short period of time. I have with me today Ryan Avent, who is not only an actor, he is a stunt coordinator, and he has had a world of experience and has some experience in martial arts. Ryan, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fantastic, Cody. How are you doing?
0: Not too bad. So how Ryan and I met, it's actually interesting because as I've said on this podcast before, I just recently moved to the state of Georgia. And when I first got here, I was put onto a film that was directed by Sarah
1: Massey. And Ryan was actually the stunt coordinator for that project. That's correct. Yep. And uh, you were kind of a shoe-in because we had cast somebody else at the time. And um, that person just was not able to make any trips up from Atlanta. He was saying, oh, I'll be good on the choreography. I've done a few action things. And as a stunt coordinator, that's the last thing you want to hear. Because you've got a timetable, you've got rehearsals, and you don't want someone acting like, oh, you know, I'll just be good on the day of because uh, then the whole production can fall apart. Everybody's waiting around for the person to learn what they got to learn, make it look good. And, um, and in smaller productions, you don't have stunt doubles. The actor is the stunt double. So <laughs> yeah. if, if they're not doing a good job, then, then then you don't have someone who can run in and fake a fall or fake a move or whatever. It's just that person's the one who's doing it. So that's why you know, when it came to certain movies, like uh, I always bring up John Wick, Keanu Reeves he trained so hard because he wanted it to be believable that he could do those moves and then for the stuff that he couldn't do he did have a stunt double but for the parts that he did do he rehearsed it rigorously so it was great having you pop on and within a few short rehearsals of uh, having you in there we were very quickly back on track and we able to keep going.
0: Yeah, that that was. I'm glad that you bring up John Wick, because for anybody who who's interested, who might be a fan of the John Wick series, you can see the the behind the scenes rehearsal that Keanu Reeves and the rest of the cast and crew did to prepare for those fight scenes, and it's it's rigorous and it's intense and it's you can learn a thing or two. That's for sure. That is for sure. Now, Ryan, I want to talk a little bit about sort of. What your story is, what your background is, obviously mentioned at the top that you're a martial artist, you are a stunt coordinator, and you're an actor. So how did all of that start and when did you become passionate about it?
1: Well, I guess my artist journey started around, I want to say around 16. Um, I didn't really have a lot of friends at the time. I was homeschooled through high school, which was not fun, and um You know, because I was very uh, kept away from a lot of other things going on. I was doing martial arts since I was six years old, so that was my outlet. And then when I got um, left my dojo and I wasn't really doing anything socially, I started working a part time job uh, at a pizza restaurant, believe it or not. And that pizza restaurant was right next to the local theater, and they had a local production of The Crucible which is a very dark show. Yeah. Probably not the best one for me to jump into uh <laughs> for my first show and and even you know, my I really I auditioned only because a friend of my mom's said, "Hey, my daughter, she does plays over here and, and and they're looking for more boys to start trying out because they don't have a lot of guys actually doing shows and your son should go try out. He might like it, you know." And my mom always called me a dramatic person. So (laughs) I thought, what the heck, let me go in. I didn't know anybody. Um, I went in and did the audition. And then after the whole show was over a couple years later, the director who gave me a part in that, it was a smaller part, but it was enough to where I had some lines and, you know, I, I got that experience of doing it. It was more of a black box production. So it was very minimalistic, not very many costumes, uh, but it was a very good show. It was very eye-opening to the whole process of being an actor. But my director admitted to me years ago that, uh, years after the play, that I really wasn't that good. And, <laughs> I, I, all I did was basically re- recite my lines because uh, I didn't know what the hell to do. And um, and and then, you know, she said I needed another tall male figure in the show, and everyone else was like a seven or eight year old and you were the only guy who actually could pass for an adult. And this was a very adult themed show. So, (laughs) So, so it was, but, but it got me started. It got, it got the bug itching. So, so then I started auditioning for more shows and I got a, I got into that friend group. And, um, my, my biggest thing was just trying to fit in. I felt like I was just in, you know, kind of on the outside looking in a lot of that process. So whenever I, started auditioning. I did a lot of shows with them. I mean, I did probably three, four shows a year. I did a couple of the youth shows and then I would do a couple of the adult shows because I was tall and I was 16. I could pass for an adult somewhat. And, um, and I always tell people, you know, theater is one of those things where, you, you know, the more you do it, it's like a muscle. You start to pick up new things. You start to do a little bit better. It's not like camera acting because with camera acting, you don't always get a lot of feedback. You don't always get, you know, people telling you, hey dude, try this, try that. But with stage, they'll, they'll actually give you line readings. They'll be like, hey, I need you to say it with more of this emotion, more of that emotion. So slowly but surely, I did improve. Um, I Did a lot of musicals. We did Les Miserables. We did, um, you know, Pajama Game was one of my biggest roles. It was my high school senior show. I was uh, the character Prez, which was the president of the union and I had this whole big monologue at the beginning of act two that was a full page of dialogue that had been my biggest role and um, had a couple of solos, too, which was pretty cool. Um, you know, so I, and my, my family got to come see me and they were like, wow, Ryan, you've really made an improvement. Um, at the time, I was still singing as a kind of a bass uh, baritone level. Um, and then when I decided to go into acting more full-time was more around the year of 2014. I started going to school at USCA, um, and they had a small theater division. And I didn't like it very much, Uh, didn't like it at all. But then fast forward to a few months later, and I was really struggling because I was still doing shows with the Aiken Theater But I wasn't really getting what I wanted from the the experience or the feelings. I wasn't really getting that at my classes. I was, you know, I was doing a bunch of projects I didn't care about. You know, none of the shows they were putting up at this college were really stuff I was interested in doing. Um, And this whole time, I'm still training martial arts. I'm still doing stuff. And then someone suggested to me after doing, you know, a couple shows uh, in my freshman year of college they said hey there's a workshop going to be happening at the theater and it's being taught by some instructors from the american academy of dramatic arts Um, many people might hear that and go oh what's that and some people might already know what that is it's the oldest standing acting school in the u.s it's you know it's been around for over a hundred something years and uh, it started in new york but they also have a, a la branch and um That was kind of like the, to get into that school was like you were something special. And at the time, I didn't think that I had a shot in getting into the school because um, some actors don't talk about this, but there's a lot of rivalry in in acting. There's a lot of headbutting. There's a lot of gossip. There's a lot of tearing people down behind the scenes. And I'd love to pick your brain on how that's been for you. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people were saying, ah, he can't sing, he can't dance, he can't act, he can't do, you know, he sucks, all this stuff. And I didn't realize it at the time, but it was coming from a place of jealousy because I was getting cast in roles that people weren't. I was getting cast in shows where people didn't get cast even as an extra in that show. And they were saying it more out of jealousy and they would do a crew position just to say that they were involved with the production. But they, the reality is that they didn't fit into the cast, so they didn't get cast. And I did. So I decided to audition for the school that everybody in that theater wanted to go to. And I got in, I sent in a a video audition. They sent me a letter a couple months later saying, congratulations, you've been accepted. Which campus would you like to attend? And I thought about it for a few seconds and I instantly thought LA. I want to go to, I want to go to Los Angeles. I want to do film. I want to do stunt work. I want to do uh, action movies. I want to, this was right around the time of like all the um, Maze Runner movies were coming out and all the, um, you know, the really young person action movies. Hunger Games was big back then uh, in 2015. Um, and so I was like, I, I think I could make it out there with those kinds of roles. Like i I might not be the best-looking guy, but I can I can at least somewhat fit into some movies like that, maybe make some money, maybe maybe enjoy myself. Um, and everybody pulled away from me as soon as I announced that I was going. Like, I'm talking, the only people who are supportive were people who were, you know, had their own careers and were just doing theater for fun. And they they saw me as the guy that I was, which was, I'm just trying to do my best, enjoy it, and be a good person, and um, everybody else just pulled back, you know, and so I I was, I I almost ran away from home in a sense, where I ran to LA just to be able to have that experience of, I'm living far away from home, I mean, that's 4,000 miles, and I'm going to be going to school in a school that everyone wants to go to, and it's almost like a middle bit bit of a middle finger to those people like yeah well you said I couldn't do it well here I am I'm I'm doing it right um so when I got there and and keep in mind I my life this is how I operate I thought let me drive there not just drive there let me ride there on my motorcycle I actually took my motorcycle and I started winter semester which meant I had to be there from January through the year and then i was going to study all summer long and then i would go straight into my second year in the fall um, uh they, they do that kind of thing where they they either ask you do you want to start in the fall and have a summer break or do you want to start in january and have no summer break like a month off in august and then continue your semester because um, it's a two-year school so i packed up all my stuff in the middle of winter took seven days to ride my motorcycle all the way across the U.S. because that's how dumb I am and how stupid I am. And I was like, I was like, if I'm not if I'm not able to make this journey in the middle of winter through rain and sleet and snow, I'm not going to make it out in L.A. Because that's a I mean, I grew up as a conservative Christian. I I knew that that was a den of hell that I was driving into. I was <laughs> I was like, that's going to be a tough environment for a little small town kid like myself. I went out, I finished school, a lot of the school we can talk about if you want to, a lot of the processes, a lot of things that went out there. And then um, I decided to come back home a couple years later, got married in between school, got, you know, had some health issues with my family that we went into. And so I just, I was like, let me move back home. Let me be closer to a family. Um, just because at the end of the day, I, you know, family's important. And if you ignore them, then they won't be around for very long and you'll regret your time that you missed with them um so i came back and currently i'm i mean it's been a long time but 2017 is when we came back and now coming up it's it's almost been five years since then and so we're 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 getting back into it and i'm excited with this uh with these projects that we've been working on because it, when you haven't done acting or stunt work or anything for a long time the itch kind of scratches you so when uh mutual friend of ours Sarah Massey asked me if I wanted to be involved with something, I was like, ooh, that that that'll be cool. Yeah, let me do that, you know, and just here here I am, back back trying to make a comeback in on the East Coast, because uh as far as I know, I don't have any intentions of moving back to the West Coast to do acting or anything like there. But lucky for me, there's a lot of stuff on this side to do. So
0: yeah, I mean, granted, everything's a little bit slow right now because of the writer and actor strikes. Mm-hmm. But before that, everything, a lot of stuff has been happening all along the South, which is which is phenomenal. And I find it interesting that you said that the first show you ever did with the, was The Crucible, because that was actually the show I did for my junior year in high school. That's and awesome. you also said it was a Black box scenario. So was ours. We did mm-hmm. Theater in the Round for our version of The Crucible. Oh, wow, yeah. It was... Uh, it was a time. I will say it was interesting because seventy percent of our actors were not off book and our <laughs> director had to step in for the guy who was playing the judge because he walked off of the stage a <laughs> week before the show. <laughs> so there was that. But you also you also mentioned sort of the gossip and, and backbiting biting that happens in this industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I've
1: experienced it big time. I think any person who's been in theater, not not film, yeah but theater has especially experienced it because you, you, you are on stage, you're in, the, you're in the dressing room with these people chatting it up, you're going out to IHOP after the show closes because it's the only restaurant that's open to get a cast meal in. Um, you, you spend hours in tech week with these people trying to get lighting and microphones to work. And it can stress people out a little bit, so some of it is understandable where people are just kind of ticked off and they're, they're biting at each other. But then the other side of it, I think, is the vanity side of, of, oh. of acting. Oh, yes. You know, where, where people are like, they they are so full of themselves that they can't be happy for other people getting the role that they wanted because it, to them it's, it's their show in their mind and it, everyone else is a side character. I like to say that. Because that they can't possibly fathom that they might not be right for a part, even if they did a great audition. I did a fantastic audition for a show, and I got an ensemble part. And it's because I didn't fit the role that I was going for. It was um, the nonsense show that the movie was based off with Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. And I auditioned for Eddie. I sang better than the main character did. I, I had his role down. I had his mannerisms down. But at the end of the day, I didn't fit what the directors were looking for for that character. In case it's not obvious, I'm a white guy. They wanted, they want, <laughs> they, they wanted to stick true to the storyline and have a, a, a black male, uh, African-American male, stick to that role. And, and it doesn't matter if I played him better or if I sang him better. It doesn't matter anything. I didn't fit what they were looking for. I can't get offended by that. I have to be happy for the guy. And at the end of the day, because I was happy for him and I still took the ensemble role and I played my part and I was just enjoying the process of being in the show, the main actor kept coming to me and and, and asking me for help here and there with some of his singing notes and and some of his stuff. And and it's because this was the first show I had done when I came back from L.A. So everybody was like, ooh, big Hollywood actors come back to town. He's doing a show with us. That's great, you know. So a little bit was that, but it was because I didn't wish him ill because he got the role instead of me. I, I wished him the best. I thought, you're a great Eddie, too. You, you, you're doing a fantastic job. And he did. He did a fantastic job. I enjoyed doing that show with him a lot and everybody else in that cast, you know. But too many people don't see it that way. They see it as, oh, I was wronged or someone stole that part. It's, people use that word a lot. They stole the part from me like, nobody can steal a part from you. No. It's given by the directors, and they give it to who they want. Nobody stole it from you unless they did something under the table with the director, which is common in Hollywood and other things, but not really with theater. I mean, it's not really common with theater unless you're up in, like, New York and it's big Broadway shows. But really, it's just a matter of it was personal preference. The casting director people, they have personal preference when they're casting. So if you don't fit the part, then you can't get offended by that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that, I think what you hit on is very important, especially if we're talking about the difference between amateurs and professionals. It's the reason why I love Brian Cranston so much. I mm-hmm. mean, the job of an actor, if you get an audition, is to go in, create a compelling character, and live in that world for however long the audition is. And if you don't get it, then the part just wasn't right for you. And if you get offended by that, then... Unfortunately, the harsh reality is is that if you don't fix that, the industry is not going to have you around for very long. Because 99% of the time, that's what you're dealing with, no matter how badly you may want the role or not.
1: Yeah, and another example is like I wanted to do a show, but I didn't have the ability to. It was a, it was a local show where they, um, they brought me in as a stunt coordinator, but also the director was insinuating to me that he wanted me to audition. Um, he, he pictured that I could be able to do certain things in the show that the main character needed to do, and he wanted to give me that chance, and I, I just flat out told him, I, I don't have the time, I'm working too much, I can't make it down for rehearsals, it would be an hour drive for me, all that kind of thing. Um, you know, he had a type that he was looking for, and I fit that type, but he still gave the role to someone else who still deserved it, who still did a great job. And what you cannot do is you cannot tell yourself, well, I didn't get cast because someone did it better. Sometimes it's not about who did it better. It's not about who sang that note more correctly. Sometimes it's not about who did that move because they usually do uh, dance tryouts as well. They want to see who can do the moves and whatnot. Sometimes it's not about who did that pirouette better. It's sometimes it's strictly about looks. And that's why I talk to people about typecasting a lot, because a lot of people like to say, ah, oh, you know, I can't get tied down into a typecast. I I can't, you know, I can do a lot of things. I've got a lot of range, you know what I mean? I got, I got a lot of characters I can play. Great, I'm sure you can play those, but your face says otherwise. Your, your, your look says otherwise. And when you walk into a casting office, sometimes you're only there for 20 seconds. You walk in, you say, hi, I'm so-and-so. And then you say a one-liner and then you're like, thank you. And then you walk out yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. I did that in LA hundreds of times. That's it. That's all you do. That, that 22nd little first impression is all you get. And half the time they're not even looking at you. They're looking down at your uh, picture and your, um, you know, your, your, your headshot and, and, and they don't even make eye contact. So, you but and short of making a spectacle of yourself, they might never look up at you in those 20 seconds, they might catch you on the way out. It's just how it goes, yeah. So, you can't take it personally if someone doesn't cast you. Um, but I think that the uh, that was a big problem growing up with uh, local theater is that, that that whole competition mindset of oh, if I don't get this role, then I'm gonna backstab this person, and it manifested itself in the way that um slowly over time, a couple of people turned a lot of my friends against me, but I can't really call them friends because if they were friends, they would tell me, hey, somebody said some, something about you. Um, you. You, you, know, Is that true or are they making it up? That would be a true friend, right? But I will say that they turned a lot of people against me with rumors and baseless accusations about me. Um, and that prompted me, that kind of pushed me towards the L.A. route because I was like, I'm not going to stick around for these people because, shoot, at the end of the day, that you know, what do I owe them? Why would I stick around for them? So, um, you know, I, I personally believe that um, there's a lot of toxicity in the industry when it comes to playing favorites of, you know, okay, you're going to be my best friend as long as you don't take a role from me.
0: Yeah, I think that is a major, major problem. And for me, there's, I've told everybody in my circle now that there's a reason why if I get the chance to do a theater show again, I will, but it's not something I'm like launching out to do because Mm -hmm. I like the community aspect of film between cast and crew members, particularly on independent sets, more than I have ever enjoyed whatever I considered the community of theater from high school up to now. Because yeah. I I think the worst experience I ever had in theater was when I was in college. Now, I went to two different sets of colleges. I'm not going to say which one this happened at. But what you're talking about in terms of gossip and people turning on you, that did happen to me so much so that I got blacklisted from a theater department and I was only able to do a show because there was a student-run program inside of that department mm. who saw through all the
1: nonsense, and they cast me as Curly Enough Mice and Men. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good show, too. Uh, the, the only reason that didn't happen to me is because, again, the, the people that I was with uh, that were kind of ostracizing me at that time none of them were directors or casters or anything like that and 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 most of the people who did direct and cast the shows saw me for who i was i was just trying to get better and i was trying to contribute to a show and they didn't care about gossip or rumors they just wanted to make sure that 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 the show was cast appropriately um which is what i tell people i'm like why waste your time tearing other people down when instead you could be focused on yourself and seeing what you can do to improve your skills and get into more shows what is what is griping or complaining ever gotten anybody nowhere it, it just it at the end of the day it gets you down yes venting is sometimes healthy like like coming out with griefs about what you know your frustrations like oh man but i really practiced hard for this i i memorized all the lines and the other person didn't even give an effort and they were stumbling over the lines and they still got par- yeah sometimes that's cathartic to let it out of your system and talk to somebody but then other times what you're doing is you're feeding yourself poison and you're just drinking it and then you're wondering why your stomach's hurting you know at some sometimes you got to be willing to step away from the role step away from the stage and and just let that go let it go be like all right I didn't get that part time to move on and it stings you know I've tried out for countless parts that I didn't get countless roles that I thought I was perfect for or that I tried hard for didn't get them you know but um that's the artist's life that's the actor's life you you lose more roles than you ever will play in your lifetime yeah at the end of the day
0: it's true and on the reality of the situation is moaning and complaining about stuff that is out of your control it's it's just a form of mental masturbation it feels good while you're doing it let's be honest complaining about stuff that is out of your control it feels very good to do but it doesn't really accomplish anything and it doesn't help you do anything. Yeah. I mean, the the only thing that can complaining can possibly do to help you is realize what areas you need to work on. Mm-hmm. Like, complain for, like, five seconds in, and it's like, oh, wait. Taking behind the scenes, what are the things in my own audition that looking at from my own perspective I feel like I could have improved on and how can I do that moving forward?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, so when i was experiencing that in uh, the local theater you know it would bug me you know a good bit i'm not going to lie like i i took it as a personal chip on on my shoulder uh, i was like these people pretended to be my friends for months cuz that's what they do they they'll, they'll 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 say they like you to your face and then the second you turn your back it's it's on like they'll start gossiping and all that stuff to the point where I literally stopped doing shows for about a year and a half uh, just because I was like, I'm done with all this nonsense. I'm not going to be involved with it. I don't want to be around these people. I don't want to see their face at auditions, like, period. Like, I just don't want it. It wasn't until I met my wife, uh, you know, that I started to realize that people didn't matter as much as I made them matter, right? If, if If they were being negative, if they were putting me down, you know, it's all in my head. Sticks and stones. And uh, so whenever I came back from Los Angeles, and I had a lot of great experiences in Los Angeles. I also had a lot of bad ones, but I had a lot of great ones. Um, One of the bad ones was um, that really shaped my mindset about acting in general was seeing people who didn't necessarily deserve to be around based on how they acted or based on how they treated other people and their cast or crew or whatnot. Um, So the whole thing that the school, the academy, preaches, this is a big problem that a lot of people complain about, not just me. I'm just probably the only one who's hopped on a podcast and said it out loud, Um, is that they let people in on an audition process, but then they tell them that if you want to come back for your second year, it's invite-only still, so you have to be actually told, okay, you're approved to come back for your second year. Um, and then it, it's also based on your grades, like every university should be. And then it's based on how you treated your cast and crew, and how you treated your coworkers, because we want to promote people who are willing to work with people, not be divas on set, that kind of a thing. Because we're the Academy and we're prestigious, and we've brought out actors like Paul Rudd and Anne Hathaway and. You know, great names in the industry have come from the Academy. I mean, uh, the the Academy has produced more Oscar-winning actors than any other acting school out there. Um, But then all the same people would come back the next year, and and you're like, wait, I thought for sure that guy was going to be gone. Holy crap, they brought him back? And then I started to realize maybe it wasn't quite like that. Maybe it was just about who could pay their tuition, And I worked my butt off to be able to uh, afford to pay that tuition. Um, And then I had family who helped me out and everything. And it, you know, spent a lot of money to go out to LA. And so that really ticked me off when I saw that a lot of people still got in because they were, no further way to say it, they were pieces of crap. Um, So when it came down to what I wanted to do, I immediately, as soon as I started to see that it wasn't about acting, but it was about money, ultimately, um, because, again, some of the people that I thought were going to flunk a class still got through just fine. It, it, they would get harsh critiques from their teacher all the way through the semester in a class until their very last presentation slash, uh, uh, um, you know, we would always have a final piece that we would do as our last acting piece. It would be either big camera or it would be on stage or whatever. And then suddenly the teacher flipped like a like a light switch, be like, oh my goodness, I saw your emotion. I saw this, I saw that. You did a great job. And, the, and they would pass the class with that last piece. So I knew that there was a little bit of buffoonery going on right there. So immediately I switched my focus to more, what do I want to do in LA that's going to give me the personal satisfaction of not having to kiss someone's ass to be able to get parts, or, or, or rather, what am I going to get the most personal satisfaction out of? And that was stunts. So when I got into stunt training, I joined a stunt crew. Um, and again, I, I've been training martial arts since I was six years old. I, I had an extensive background. Choreography for dancing came natural to me as well, um, just because when you do martial arts choreography, it makes you slightly coordinated. I could memorize a dance move the first time I saw it. Um, and, and somewhat replicate it, even if I wasn't very refined. Um, but I joined a stunt crew called Sword Fights, Inc., and we did um, several projects uh, out in Los Angeles. And my biggest disappointment with being a part of that stunt team is that I didn't see any of that footage. None of the projects came to fruition. They all tanked, and n- none of the stunt footage was released. None of it was – one project in particular we filmed out in uh, a desert, and it was hot, and we were out there for eight hours in full costume. It was like a Mad Max set, so I had layers on layers, and we were doing sword fights and rolls and and all kinds of things. And and we have what's called, uh, in the stunt world, pod fights. So you have these pod fights that are supposed to be in the background of hero fights. So you've got the hero fights going on in the front of the camera where the camera's focused. And then the pod fights are literally sequences that are repeated over and over again in the background to make it look like there's a big battle going on around you, right? So so I did pod fights all day long and then we did our hero fight where the camera was on us and we had our moves and everything like that. And I thought, you know, when the director told us Uh, It was a group of us three. He said, you guys were the best. You guys had the best timing. You guys had the best camera angles. You guys, I will absolutely get you your clip. Even if the project falls apart, I will get you all your clip. And then nothing happened. The the footage, don't know what happened to it. Just nothing happened. And that was very discouraging for me. Because I was like, how am I supposed to get work as a stunt person if I can't have a stunt reel? How am I supposed to prove to people how skilled I am? if I have nothing to show for all the hours of work at the end of the day. So, so that was very discouraging. And then, um, the main reason we moved back, I mentioned was health issues with my family. So my dad for the, uh, for about seven years had had a enlarged heart. He had a pacemaker and he had, uh, problems with his heart slowing down, going out of arrhythmia and, um, it was getting progressively worse. So I was like, let's move back home and let's be closer to him. And, I'll figure out something else to do. And then I went straight into teaching martial arts full time. Um, It was just what I did. I love teaching, by the way. If anything, if I could teach anything, you know, I'm not a school teacher. I'm not book smart. But if I teach, I get joy because I see people when they get that click moment of "I, I understand something, I get something. I love that moment because it's like, oh, I get it now. And so when I came back, I started teaching a few stunt training courses at the theater. I did a couple shows, like I said. And then I started uh, teaching martial arts full time, right? Um, And then fast forward to, you know, the birth of my first son. Um, My first son, he was uh, born May 21st of 2020 which was the one-year mark after my dad had to have an emergency heart transplant. Uh, He had a heart transplant May 21st of 2019. He had been on the transplant list for, you know, probably two, three years before that, but he got escalated when his uh, pacemaker kept going off, kept going off. And um, then he got his new heart, his heart was great, and he hit the one-year mark, um, which is fantastic for a transplant patient. I don't know if you know, but when you get a transplant, your body is trying to reject that organ. It's trying to kick it out because it senses that it's foreign tissue. It's not your DNA. So you have to be on a lot of medications, a lot of anti-rejection drugs. And um, he hit the one-year mark and right then my son was born on the same day that we were literally gonna go and celebrate my dad's one-year mark and uh, and we were gonna have a big party and everything to say, hey dad, you made it. You made it to the one-year mark. That means you're, you're officially getting better, right? Um, and then fast forward to, you know, but then keep in mind, this was right when the pandemic happened. Talk about a mental health crisis, yeah. right? Oh my God. Everybody's locked away in their houses and they can't go anywhere. They got a mask up, which deprives them of oxygen and, 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 oh, they can't, they can't see their family members because of, uh, the, the risk of spreading disease and oh, we've got a brand new baby on top of it. And yeah. And, and that, now we're worried about the baby and their risk. And just so much, so much happened. I wasn't working because we had to close the school down. Um, the students were basically told we'll resume classes in a month, uh, virtually. We'll do Zoom classes. I don't know, that, that's a funny concept to me. How do you do Zoom karate classes?
0: Yeah, I I don't know. All I know is I
1: graduated in 2020 from college.
0: (laughs) And for the last three months, I swear our instructors were just sitting back, barely trying to get us (laughs) so we could graduate. Every single class, they're like, if you want your screens on, you can. But otherwise, all you got to do is listen to what we're trying to teach you. And so... (laughs) We did presentations, but it almost felt like they were half-hearted, half-assed presentations, and then we all graduated with a graduation, mind you, where we just got, like, the graduation video that was three hours long, (laughs) which you could go through from beginning to end to find out where your name was and then turn it off. That's
1: hilarious. That's really funny. Funny. Did you get your diploma in the mail? Yeah. Oh, man. So you didn't even get to have that experience of grabbing it no i now i feel really bad about telling you about my graduation (laughs) (laughs) because in 2017 is when i graduated and what the academy does is they rent the dolby theater on broadway or or on hollywood boulevard okay and they rent it out for our graduation so that we get to walk the stage that hopefully we will see again when we receive an oscar which i don't think i ever receive an Oscar unless I really get back into acting full-time, which I don't see currently for the foreseeable future. But um, but you literally walk the stage in your best... I mean, I, I went all out. I bought a Calvin Klein black tux, and we we I got my moment where I walked up and got my diploma, and, and we all took a picture as a graduating class, and... And I got to sing on the stage with our acapella group, which was pretty cool. I mean, that's always fun. We actually paid tribute to a, a, to a, a gentleman who had died in a car wreck who was one of the students. Um, and several other people had been in the car with him, but he's the only one who died. And so we got to sing a, a beautiful song, beautiful tribute to him. But to sing on the Dolby stage. Yeah. To sing in front of all your uh, you know, cast and, 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 and uh classmates, it was just incredible, and then, you know, I got, I had other moments where I got to go into that theater, because again, I, I, my school was literally two blocks away from that theater, it's literally right there on La Brea Avenue, I won't even forget it, right down the street from Pink's Hot Dog, shout out to Pink's, I spent way too much money there, the <laughs> fantastic place, um, but anybody can go see the Academy and tour it and everything. It's it's so close to the heart of Hollywood. My first apartment was literally on Hollywood Boulevard, two blocks away and, and uh, from, from the Dolby stage, and I could literally walk down and see all the street performers and everything like that. But to your point, the pandemic was pretty awful. Like, yeah. It was pretty bad. It ruined a lot of people's... I'm sure nobody pictured having their college graduation no. be like that.
0: No, I... The thing is for me, I'm someone who likes to get stuff done and I don't like sitting around very often. So the amount ima- like going through my high school graduation was bad enough. I did not want to go through my college graduation, <laughs> even especially my senior year leading up to it because I was the group that I was a part of when I was in college, especially my senior year, we were constantly making stuff. Mm-hmm. like uh, my my good friend Stephen Bennett, myself and our buddy Maverick Keegan, We created a film festival, which is still going right now, called the Shit in the Dirt Film Festival, (laughs) which is based all around filmmakers creating things with whatever budget they have. And we thought it was going to be like a one and done type thing, but it is going three years strong. And from what I know, even being down here, there is potential that we could move it to a couple more states other than Maine if things keep going as well as they have been. Right. So it's like the idea of just sitting for three hours, as much of an honor as it would have been. <laughs> the thing is, if it was at the Dolby Theater, I probably would have had a different opinion, but doing oh, a yeah. regular college graduation at a bank, which is where it would have been, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I had a good experience. The, the Another gripe is that they... Um, they had a last-minute change with the photographers for the event, and the photos were absolute dog shit. I mean, they were, <laughs> when when I was walking forward, they have this moment where they announce, this is your Academy. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, well, please welcome your graduates from the 2017 American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Curtain goes up, and then we're supposed to walk down the stage one at a time to applause, uh, so we get our kind of moment and they got a picture of me literally with my leg way out to the side <laughs> and, like, you know, my face was turned and my arms were at a weird angle. I was like, I'm walking slowly. It's not that hard to get a still shot of me. At the very least, you should have been snapping continuous shots of everybody and then you could have taken the best stills out of it. And then <laughs> when they took pictures of us on the red carpet in the um, – uh, the Hard Rock Cafe is adjacent to the uh, Dolby Theater, and we rented that out. They they rented that out for the after party, and and I went there with my family. My family literally flew out to Los Angeles to see me graduate, which was a very special moment. And um, my wife and I are there, all you know, looking glamorous. Didn't even get a single good photo of that. The only photo that I have that's worth showing people was a very grainy photo my sister took from her iphone 10 20 feet away you know because she wasn't close enough to get a good shot you know it's just there was a lot of there was a lot of crap and then and then everybody was mad because they want they the photographers made it so you had to buy your photos and everyone was like well we don't mind buying our photos if the photos are good everybody's photos were bad every single one so we were all we all not all i'm sure there was some people who bought them but a lot of us just decided we were not gonna buy the photos we just all we were like you know what everyone stick together we're just not buying the photos then they can't make money you know off the job (laughs) because they were selling them they were selling the photos for like hundreds of dollars they had to pay like three hundred dollars for like two three photos you know what i mean like it was just ridiculously expensive but like um you know when the COVID hit though Um, back to that time period it's like you know a lot of people did not know how serious that was going to be i'm talking it's 2023 and people are still masking up and still getting booster shots and 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 life still has not walmart is still not 24 hours we haven't gone back to that's how i know life will never be the same again because walmart didn't go back to being open 24 hours a day (laughs) you know that's when walmart closes down you know it's serious like everybody says down here in the south if if a waffle cl- if a waffle house is closed you know there's a tornado coming right you know because at the end of the day they'll stay there and they'll stand outside and look at it while your eggs are cooking you know on the griddle yeah but, um you know so for me um when i i i didn't care about any of it i had a brand new baby i i my dad had made it to one year i was probably at the highest emotional level not only that but i was also working to buy that dojo i was working contracts i was talking to the owners i wasn't happy with the money that i was making at the time and so i was i was just talking to them and i had a couple of business partners who were members of the school and they were saying look you're a young kid you probably don't have the credit score uh, to get a loan from the bank to buy this business, but we will back you because we like the way you run the school We like the way that you do things. We don't personally like the owners. So let's let's work together We'll use our houses as equity We have two homes and, and we'll we'll get a loan from the bank and then once we're paid off We'll step back and let you it's the business will be yours like the the once we're paid off plus residuals will be we'll be good, right? And I had every indicator from the owners that they were cooperating through this process. They had given me, uh, you know, their their profit loss statements. They had given me all their financial records and everything. Then COVID hit, and I was still under the impression that we're still doing this. Like, because I was told, oh, we need to close on this deal by June. And I was like, oh, pandemic will be over by then. Like, we'll be good. Um, we weren't, because um, the one of my darkest weeks of my life uh as far as my mental health goes was in may i got fired on a friday they i they just called me in and they said hey we want to talk to you about the school just go ahead and drive over keep in mind at this time you know that the the we don't hold classes on fridays and we were doing two zoom two zoom classes a week you know for our students you know, So I was like, okay, well, they're probably wanting to talk to me about school. And they threw my bag of stuff at me and said, get the hell out. You're banned. And if you don't leave right now, we're calling the police. Yeah. Talk about a, a blind side. I was like, what the hell are y'all talking about? And so I, I left super upset, super mentally not okay because I'm like, I've got a brand new baby. My wife isn't working she's recovering from a c-section and how am i going to pay rent how am i going to take care of things uh, and you know because the year before again i didn't make very much money at that school they, they didn't pay their instructors very well um, at that time so but the, we were okay because my wife was working the full eight months of her pregnancy so we had that dual income to be able to pay our bills as soon as she stopped working for the baby i was like how the hell am i going to make money Um, I knew for a fact that I wasn't going to be able to get another job as a martial arts instructor because I signed a one-year non-compete and that one-year non-compete was for any school, I couldn't work for any martial arts school within a hundred mile radius. So I would have had to up and move my family at least a hundred miles away if I wanted to get into the same career, um, for one year, right? Um... And I was tempted to break that one-year non-compete. I was like, I just won't post where I'm working for a year, and I'll just go work for somebody else and try to avoid people taking pictures of me on the Internet, whatever, you know. Um, But I called my dad that day, and on my way home, I was like, how am I going to talk to my wife? How am I going to tell her what happened? I, I was so distraught. And my dad is very calm, very, you know, he's not a very excitable man, and he just, I remember his words to this day, he said take today, take a deep breath, we'll help you out if you need it. Tomorrow, start applying for jobs, go out, try to knock on doors, somebody will give you a job, everything will be okay, God's got got it in control. Then, my dad was supposed to go that very same week to Charleston to have a checkup for his heart, and everything was fine by all indicators. He was... You know, relatively doing well and then he went in on Thursday and uh, something wasn't right with the numbers so they decided to keep him overnight he was only supposed to go there and back the same day and um, he very suddenly my mom drove up that very same night to be with him in the hospital since they were keeping him uh, that very night he passed away from sepsis which is organ failure out of nowhere. They, 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 it was literally within eight, 10 hours. He'd gone from being perfectly healthy to his kidneys and his liver and everything shutting down, which was, you know, that was the worst phone call I've ever received in my life. Cause my mom called me that Friday morning at 7am, my baby and my wife are asleep, uh, thankfully the baby didn't wake up but my wife woke up when we got that call and i just i was destroyed my dad and i are close i've got four siblings but my dad and i were always close i used to call him for anything i needed i used to ask him for advice wouldn't always take it but i would always call him and ask him his opinion even if i disagreed with him i would i still wanted his opinion i still valued it um he was always the person who was kind of like the calm in the storm. I I, I like to say that my dad was like the light post on a shadowy uh, coastline, and you're in the middle of a fog, and he was just standing there, and you might not see his light all the time, but you knew he was there, and he didn't move. He didn't, like, go anywhere. He was right there, you know, in our family. He was very, very much a leader in the whole family, amongst his siblings and everybody. So it hit everyone very hard. Very hard. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was very, very difficult to get through that time. And COVID didn't make it any easier. I was pissed off as hell at the world over everything that was going on. And so I just decided, let me just take three months off. I'm three or four months off. I just spend it with my child because my kid's a newborn. I won't get this time back with him. And if I go out and start working right away, you know, we had savings, so we could afford to, for me to stay home for a while. It wasn't the best decision looking back on it, but then I spiraled into a, let me splurge on myself to try and buy myself out of all this depression, you know, and uh, when we... When I got a call about another dojo opening up in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, to be honest, I, I I don't know if what I felt was accurate or not, but I felt a voice say, you should take that call. I, I just, I don't know if it was my dad talking to me or God talking to me, but I know I, I needed to take that phone call. And then circumstances around that led me to uh, moving up to South Carolina. Now, the more in-depth story is that it took a lot for me to be hired because it was the same company, but because it's a franchise, they have different locations and different owners. And Columbia is not outside the 99 hundred mile mark, so technically I would have been in breach of my one-year non-compete. The owner of that school said let me make some phone calls, and he had to convince the CEO of the company of the franchise to let me work for him up in Columbia. And the previous employers that I worked for tried to stop that from happening, so they wanted to stop me from working in the industry that I was good at. And I was good, I was good. What our school had 187 students in a 1400 square foot building that's. That's a tiny dojo with a lot of students. I signed up 83 people in my first month that I worked there down there in Grovetown, Georgia. 83 people signed up within, and 60 of those stayed long-term students. So that you know, you got to be doing something right if you turn numbers like that in a dojo of that size. Dojos, for anyone who is wondering, you know, think about a subway in a strip mall. That's the size of the space that we had. Take out all the counters and tables and everything. That's the size of the mat that we had. And we had regular classes of like 25 people, 25 people, 25 people. Five, six classes a night just to be able to fit them all through the schedule. So so the CEO approves me. We move up to Columbia. Unbeknownst to me, my wife is going through postpartum depression, which is devastating and any couple who is about to have a baby or has had a baby, it doesn't matter if you're even feeling it or not. My recommendation is talk to your doctor and get some antidepressants and mood stabilizers. Just have them in just in case. Because postpartum hits like that. It just and it and it's a wave of stuff that goes over you. Um, And I didn't know it at the time because I was too excited about the new job. I was too excited about starting again and, and starting a new dojo too so i was like oh i i worked for a dojo but i get to start a dojo i get to actually open one from scratch and every student will be mine from white belt up and so uh we we did the move the dojo's going through and then my wife and i have a separation and we're doing this back and forth thing between Augusta and Columbia. I'm still trying to focus on my work, but I can't because I'm separated from my wife. I'm having weekends with my kid, that's not fun too. And then we get back together and things are okay for a little bit and things are kind of off at work to the point where the, uh, the owner is doing some sketchy stuff. Uh, he was never present. I was running the place full-time you know, basically operating that place by myself. He was full-time military. So he would come up maybe once a month, maybe every couple months. Sometimes I couldn't even get him on the phone, which was terrible position to put your, you know, your manager in. Like if you run a business, you need to be available full-time. I don't care if you are in the military or not. If you're in the military and you can't be available full-time, here's a newsflash for you. Don't open a business. Because you can't, you can't, you can't run a business if you're not available. You don't have to be there full time, but you have to be available. You have to answer texts. You have to be able to provide uh, funds for certain things, payments for gear, things like that. When you're not, and the longest time that he disappeared for was literally like seven weeks. Seven weeks of no contact, not answering texts, phone calls, emails, nothing. Turns out he was in a mental hospital in Florida. Because he was in suicide watch. Because of PTSD. Yeah. So that talk about me rethinking things for a little bit. And my wife and I go through another separation because we still didn't have things uh, fixed. Things were still not okay with her mentally. She was still going through a lot of struggles. uh, Inner demons and whatnot. And, uh, And then it came to a head July 30th of last year. Literally one year from last... Almost one little over one year from now and I ended up quitting because my the owner I found out that he was not paying his employees he was also embezzling money or not embezzling but misappropriating funds he was taking money that was dedicated for buying people's gear so somebody pays you $300 for all their gear and instead of buying their gear, he was telling them, well, it's on the way. It, there's a shipping crisis going on because of COVID. So it, it, we, we might have to wait a while. And he was spending that money on marketing. And then he would tell me, oh, you know, we can't order stuff right now because it's shipping's too expensive. And I'm like, but I gave you the money for the person gave me the money. I gave you the money. You told me you would handle the payments. So if you can't handle it, then give me a company card. I will take care of ordering gear on time. I'll make sure the students get it. I had one student who was with us for six months who didn't even have pants. He was training in Adidas black sweatpants, you know, that kind of looked like dojo pants, but not really. You know what I mean? And it it was just embarrassing because so many people were constantly, every day they came in, hey, is our stuff in? Hey, is our stuff in? I had to tell them. Not yet. Not yet. I'm still waiting, hearing, waiting to hear back, waiting to hear back. It put me in a very bad situation. And then I was writing checks, sometimes out of my own account, to employees to make sure they got paid, even though they should have been set up with direct deposit like I was. I was the only employee there full time that had direct deposit set up correctly. And turns out I don't think he was paying taxes on his employees either. So we reported him for that Um, because he was giving them paper paychecks and then no pay stubs, and then they didn't even receive their W-2s whenever tax season rolled around. And I asked every single former employee, I said, did you receive w W-2? Did you? Did you? I wasn't even working there at the time. I just called them to be like, hey, you know, I'm not working there anymore, but have you received your W-2 yet? And they're like, no, no, no. And I was like, this is unbelievable. I'm not even working there anymore, and I'm still doing the job as a manager because he doesn't have his shit together, you know? Um, So... So his business folded eight months after I left. He st- he's still on the hook for about nine years, maybe eight years of rent because he signed a 10-year lease with a very high-profile shopping center. There's an eviction notice on his door, and he's been sued at probate court by the owners of that building. Jeez. Yeah. And, and I, drove over, I drive over there every now and then just waiting for the police officers to throw out all the mats and stuff. Uh, because they're going to take everything out of there, throw it in the trash, out back. And I keep telling my students, who some of them lost thousands of dollars because the dojo closed, and they can't get in touch with the owner because he won't answer phone calls, emails. He's gone AWOL. He's just completely off the grid. And, you know, some of those students reach out to me still, and they're like, we paid him $3,000, 4000 $5,000. How do we recoup that? And I'm like, I don't know. Just keep driving by the dojo wait for some mats to appear outside the door and set up a dojo inside you'll you'll recoup some of your money because some of that stuff's worth a lot of money you know at the end of the day um but we uh you know then transitioned to i signed a one-year non-compete again and even if the dojo was closed the owner still was holding me to that one-year non-compete he actually texted me at one point and was like if you break your non-compete i'll see you in court you know, this is how crazy this guy is. He, he blames me for his business failing, but I was gone for eight months. If he couldn't have turned the business around in eight months, he had an instructor. He had all the resources available to him from corporate, from uh, the franchise owners. So if he didn't turn the business around, it's on him. He was in a prime location, everything. So it's not my fault that his business failed. It's his own fault. And uh, But he was holding me to my non-compete. So... Um, So fast forward to today, since that day, I have been working as a mechanic in the blistering hot sun. I have been, because cars are my other hobby, I'm going to call it a hobby because it's just what I do for work and it pays the bills. And I am currently working towards building a dojo. Um, And my goal is to make it different from every other dojo out there. Because I've seen a lot of bad practices. I've seen a lot of bad business practices and dojo practices. And um, my goal is to create something different. And I'm going to ruffle a lot of feathers when I do so. I'm going to... A lot of people are not going to be happy about how I run my school. But that's okay because I learned through this whole process. Starting with actors who talk behind my back. Through loss of a family member. And... When I saw that that family member died, I started to see how people treated us after he left. After he passed away, certain people acted differently towards us. People who claimed that he was such an inspiration to them. And I'm like, well, he was sick for seven years and y'all never visited him once, or talked to him, or texted him. Y'all claimed to be his friends, but when he needed you the most, you weren't around. You know, And so through those interactions, through seeing certain people blamed me for the dojo closing and, and, and all that stuff, I started to realize that in this industry, in any industry, you have to be willing to piss a few people off in order to do the right thing that's right for you and right for other people. Because right doesn't equal always equal uh, what the norm is. Doing the right thing in martial arts means that you don't cause people to go into debt just to afford your product. I actually had an instructor uh, or a school owner who I was asking advice for, business advice. And he said, you have to be willing to price your product to where people are willing to go pull out an extra credit card or ask their grandparents uh, for money so they can afford it. That doesn't sound like a product I want to sell. I don't want someone to need life-changing skills of self-defense to be able to keep themselves safe. Maybe a kid's getting bullied in school and the parents bring him to me saying, hey, we need to teach him how to have more confidence and stand up for himself, you know, and then they look at my price sheet and go, whoo, we can't afford that. Let's call up grandma, see if she'll give us a check. Because then what happens is what if grandma doesn't want to pay that a second year in, in, around or, or a third year around? Or, then they then you lose a student because they can't afford it. And it's easier to keep students than it is to go find new ones. Everyone will tell you that. It's easier to keep students than to find new ones. But you can't keep students if you have a bad business model that's based on corporate greed and, 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 and padding your pockets. For instance, uh, um, I'll just go ahead and share. I made... $33,000 in my first full year teaching only martial arts so I I've taught martial arts for the last 10 years but this was my first you know in 2019 was the first full year that I was full-time martial arts instructor nothing else and every other year before that I had been teaching on the side and doing other things um 33 grand I was working 78 hours a week that was with incentives if I was a single college student that might be affordable right and and that's the struggle that a lot of actors find themselves in and that's one of the things that I thankfully avoided when I lived in Los Angeles because my wife and I we just lived in a little studio apartment and we worked two three jobs a piece uh in order to be able to pay our rent and be independent but a lot of actors have to have roommates a lot of actors have to have uh several forms of income coming in right for me when i saw that i made so little doing something that was very profitable very profitable Uh, martial arts industry is a billion dollar industry and i saw the money we were bringing into that dojo and i saw how little i was making and then when i approached the owners about it and said hey i'd like i've done a year of business with y'all i have made you x amount of money I would like to see my income go up because I've got a baby on the way. Um, You know what their answer was? Well, why don't you move somewhere cheaper? Why don't you, your your rent's probably too high. Uh, Why don't you cut some bills out? You know, things like that. So their answer to me asking, look, I've I've brought this value to the company. How can I increase the company's value even more to justify getting a raise? Their answer to that was, you should cut your personal expenses. After they were spending $181,000 on themselves from the business. $181,000. About a hundred and ten of that or hundred twenty of that was their own personal salaries that they paid themselves, even though they weren't working full-time. They would come in and go and that kind of a thing. They're the owners. They're allowed to do that. That's their business. But then they also bought a bunch of stuff through the company, the LLC, that they claimed on their taxes about... Another sixty, seventy thousand dollars worth of stuff, including a brand new van and all this stuff. Um, so they paid themselves almost two hundred grand, while I was living on a measly twenty eight thousand dollars was my salary, and then I got another four thousand on top of that in bonuses. See what I mean? So, so, I I I like to talk about the strike, the SAG after strike, in reference to that because I know exactly what it's like to be way underpaid for doing high-quality work.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's really important that you bring that up because in if you're a member of the union for people who mm-hmm. don't know, in order to get health insurance, you have to make a little over $26,000 a year. And for 87% of actors, it's not happening because nope. in terms of residuals, in terms of the money they get on one job, nothing is covering the expenses that they need, especially since not counting... Insurance, there's getting headshots updated. There is there is going to classes. There is updating all of your acting profiles. And if you've got a professional website, keeping that updated. And most of the time, actors also have side businesses so they can stay in the industry. So they've got all mm-hmm. those expenses they have to take care of. And for whatever reason, the industry is giving a big middle finger to everybody who is keeping the system running.
1: I agree. Which And, and, and they... they you know, at the end of the day, they, they, I would say if you own a company, you have the right to dictate wages. Absolutely. Right. But then people also have the right to refuse to work if they're not happy with those wages. You know, it's, it's like, if I give you a carrot, you can do with that carrot what you want. It's now yours. Right. And so when, when, when I give you a little tiny baby carrot and I give myself a big bag full of carrots, You can see my big bag full of carrots, and you might go, Hey, I I feel like this one is not enough. Can I have more? And if I say no, then it's you, then what I can't expect you to stick around. And I've said this from the beginning of my career. Why are people so underpaid in certain high value uh, businesses is because of, I don't want to say corporate greed, because that's like a big umbrella term. I hate that. I think it's personal greed is the biggest factor because not everybody in the industry who's high up, who's making decisions is a bad person. Not every person making a high salary is, is choosing to keep it. I have said multiple times that some of the higher paid actors really shouldn't speak into it to the point where they're like, Oh, well we need better wages. Talk is cheap. In my opinion, I would you know, I'm I'm not into socialism or anything, but some of those high paid actors are. And if if some of them, some of the highest paid actors say, hey, we want better wages for these people. And I see that they made four or dollars off their last movie. I would go, well, why don't you agree to a pay cut? That that would at least temporarily help the situation like, hey, I will donate X amount of dollars from my personal salary to boost everyone else's salary. A good example of this is, um, I don't know if you've heard of the sport of strongman. So strongman is my favorite sport because it's the most entertaining to me. It's it's big guys lifting un, unbelievable, freakishly heavy weights, and they do it in an entertaining way. A giant log from a tree, or a 500 kilogram, or you know 1,100 pound, you know big yoke that they have to carry. 20, 30 feet and they run with it on their backs. Like I, I can't picture picking up any of those weights, but there's a good tournament going on or a good competition going on. That's called the Shaw classic. Brian Shaw is a four time world strongest man from the U S he is multiple time. Arnold strongman winner. He is a fantastic icon in the industry. He's been doing stuff since 2007, 2008 and he's putting on his own tournament and he's built it, built it, built it. But every single year, including the first year he ran it, he didn't take any prize money because he's making money on the back end by running the thing. I mean, he's making a profit. Otherwise, how could he have grown the tournament or grown the strongman competition to this day? I mean, it keeps getting bigger. He's got expos. He's got guest performances. He's bringing on more athletes each year. He's He's got a giant venue now versus the first year he did it. He was in his garage. This is an example of personal... Uh, selflessness. He decided, I'm not going to take any of the prize money. He won the first year and the first year's prize money would have been like $13,000 or something. He could have pocketed that. Instead, he distributed it through everybody else in the roster. He gave his earnings away to the other people. He still made a profit because again, he was able to build that tournament. He was still able to provide, but he was willing to take a cut and give it out to make sure other people could come back the next year and compete because some of those strong men depend on that money for uh food and 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 supplements and training equipment and all this stuff travel it's a it's an expensive sport to do because they often travel around the world to do it so for me the writer's strike and the actor's strike could come to a quicker conclusion if some of the top level actors were willing to step up and say hey look while we're negotiating better salaries for them, go ahead and give us a little bit of a salary cut and we'll distribute that evenly between people who need it more than we do because I promise you, actors like Scarlett Johansson and Paul Rudd and all these guys don't need $25 million per movie or whatever it is. You know, Some of these guys are making multiple millions and millions and millions of dollars. They don't need it. They, they really don't. They've already got millions and millions of dollars from their careers. Some of these people have made so much money on it yeah and they may live in million dollar mansions if they wanted to be the good samaritans that they claim to be walking a picket line is not going to help instead doing something actionable would help that's my personal opinion people can argue with me if they want but i think that if you're gonna walk the walk then do it don't just uh, a virtue signal like hey i'm with you guys you and then you you know they they'll walk the picket line they'll go back to their million dollar mansion they'll be just fine versus the other people who are striking that actually need the raises in income they are worried about if their lease gets canceled because they don't yeah. they don't have money to pay it they're worried about how am I going to eat this month you know what i mean like like yeah, it's it's absolutely. different it, it's different stakes for them yeah it is
0: and i mean everything to do with the actors is bad i don't think most people understand when it comes to the writer strike, yes, everybody mm-hmm. knows that the top 1% of actors are making millions and millions mm-hmm. of dollars a year. When it comes to the writers, the top like 1% to 2% of writers in Hollywood are only making maybe 200000 grand. That's where, crazy to me. Where they, for they, the most part, the average is, is 75000 Like for a living They're
1: the ones who create weight. the stories. Yeah. They're the ones, you wouldn't have a story at... Granted, a lot of people haven't been happy with the stories coming out lately. But that's because since COVID, a lot of the writing has gotten more pushed, more uh, uh, streamlined. They've been trying to push out movies to catch up, if you will. Uh, After a pandemic, basically a whole year and a half of nothing coming out, they were doing reruns of movies and things like that. The movie theaters suffered, I think, a, a great deal. I'm very surprised that movie theaters even reopened. Uh, that survived, because most of their revenue comes not from the movies themselves, but from what what you buy at the movie theater. That's why popcorn is so dang expensive. People... He realized that those movie theaters, the fact that they even opened is a miracle.
0: Yeah, it movie really theaters is. like Hollywood is its own business and so are me- movie theater companies and mm-hmm. movie theater chains. AMC, Regal, like those are their own business. And they if the pandemic showed anything, they tanked during the course of the pandemic. Yeah. And there was a risk of every theater in the country shutting down at one point. The fact of the matter is, and luckily, updates about strikes and negotiations are still coming out. At the time of this recording, the AMPTP did say that they're opening up a new negotiating meeting for for the Writers' Union. So we'll see how that goes through. That's good. But, yeah, I mean, here's hoping with everything in regards to the strike, in regards to everything that happened during the pandemic, and to everything... The mental health for people in a, the creative industry, whether it's martial arts or acting or writing, it has been severely strained. If, if it's done anything, it has shown those who are actually going to be here for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Because even after all of this nonsense that's been happening, we're still here. And I think that is actually a good point for us to come to a close of this episode. So first of all, Ryan, I just want to say thank you for, for sharing everything that you have. Because it really, really means a lot. And I hope anybody who's listening can certainly not only learn from your story, but take something from it so they can make their own journey feel a little bit easier. Now, before we go, is there anything, number one, that you're either proud of or want to promote or just uh,
1: any last minute advice you'd like to give? Yeah, so a couple pieces of advice for people who are wanting to get into this industry from coming from a person who went neck deep into it and then came out of it thinking it might not be for me. I I'm still active in as far as, you know, I had the opportunity to join SAG after I turned it down because I knew I might not have, you know, I knew I was moving back and, and I was like, I don't want to join the union and then just sit on my union membership for however long I'm going to be back in the South because I I didn't know if I was moving back permanently or temporarily. So my advice to people is if you want to join the union, join it if you are getting steady work or if you're getting steady offers for union work, right? Don't, don't just join it because you got one episodic offer uh, for a union gig and you say 10 lines and then you're going to go back to basically... Hoping that you get more after that. You, if you are offered a decent union gig, and they decide to uh, basically award you membership based on, hey, we want you for this project. This is a fairly big project, so we're going to go ahead and get you into SAG after. You, you have to basically be uh, uh, adopted in through the movie process. There's several processes to go through to get into SAG after. So, you know, I encourage people to read up on that. But if there's a big project that they want to adopt you in for, do it. That's great, right? Hopefully the strike will be over by then. But there's no reason to be in a union if you're not even doing consistent non-union work. If you're doing consistent non-union work, then you'll be just fine when you join the union. But if if you're doing maybe one non-union project a year, it's probably not for you. It's probably not something you need to do. Um, My other piece of advice is, You don't have to spend a ton of money to get into this industry. You don't have to do what I did and spend $70,000 or so just in school fees to go to a fancy art school. You can take a few acting classes, a few elective courses, and just start working in the industry. You'll probably learn more on the job than you will in a classroom, just straight up, just being honest. I had a lot of great teachers. I learned a lot from them. But it wasn't until I actually started putting it into practice that, you know, on stage and on camera that I started really understanding it, being like, oh, that's what they meant by that. Um, so for me, uh, a big part of what I'm trying to do is break the industry. I'm trying to create a new product uh, of martial arts that has that not been done before, where I'm, you know, my my dojo, what I teach is not unheard of. I'm teaching pretty much the most popular systems, which is sport karate and jiu-jitsu and Israeli Krav Maga and and, and mixed martial arts uh, or octagon fighting or cage fighting, right? So those are not unheard of. A lot of schools teach all those things. What I'm trying to do is create something that is new as far as a business model. It's customer first, employee second, owner third. I'm going to be making sure that our customers have an affordable product. They can pay what they, uh, you know, there, there's going to be pay brackets for every level of customer. If someone wants to come once a week, they pay X. If they want to come five times a week, they pay X. And it's going to be scalable. And if someone's like, well, I really want to train, but I don't know if I can afford this. Great. We've got a product for you. We've got a price for you. I'm not going to price people out of my product. Because uh, anyone who says, oh, but you're you're going to sign up a lot of bad students that way. Why would you call them a bad student? Oh, well, they, they're going to be late on their bill, all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're late on their bill because your bill is too high. They're, they're, they can't afford the product because you've priced them out of it. They signed up anyway because they needed something. But the minute you put someone into a point of desperation that they need your product, uh but they really can't afford it, they'll find a way to pay for it, but they won't stick around. Yeah. Because the financial burden and hardship is going to be too much, like the rent crisis going on nowadays. Yeah. People are are really needing housing, and all the uh, used-to-be-affordable housing is going up, up, up every year. I mean, my, my rent is supposed to go up in November up to $200. That's why I'm moving, because the area should not reflect my rent going up. I live in the ghetto. Like, I live in a very bad area. They've done nothing to keep up with my house, you know? So I tell people like, you know, you do not have to have, you can treat people right. That's, that's my thing. You can treat people right and fairly. And then another thing that I'm trying to do that's different is I'm trying to make sure that my instructors are paid uh, more than a livable wage, that they can make six figures a year if they want to, if, if they work hard and, and, and and it's, it's going to be very achievable. It's not going to be a, Hey, you might make this much if you work hard. Like, no, it's actually going to be on paper. Hey, if you do this, you will make this. If you do this, you will make this. Every bonus I ever made, and this is speaking into the um, stunt world in, in, in film. If you do a stunt, you're paid for that stunt. If I go and I, I'm on set and they ask me to do something extra, great. Let me call up my agent have you talk about that extra stunt with them. And then you have to renegotiate, and then you have to see what they're willing to pay for that extra stunt. You have to be willing to scale up uh, in your pay as a stunt person because you can't just say, oh, yeah, I'll do it because then you just undersold yourself and, and you you weren't paid appropriately. So for, for my instructors who, across the martial arts industry, many instructors are way underpaid because the owner pockets most of their money, most of which... Uh, a lot of martial arts school owners are multiple school owners, so they own multiple locations. So their idea is, let me pocket as so much money that I can open up another school. If I take in more money, I can open up another school and hire another person, pay them $30,000 a year, keep them semi-happy because they're just excited to be running their own school. And it, That's a failing business model because then as soon as that person realizes how badly they're being paid, they quit. And when yeah. they quit, they take students with them. And then that school starts to fail because then you've got to put another instructor in, and you've got to train that instructor, and then you've got to sign up more students to replace the ones that left, and then you've got a culture shift. I think a big part of the uh, the movie industry is the culture sucks right now. The culture is that we don't care about the little guy. Yeah. We don't care about the little guy. We care about making money. That's that's where Disney lost a lot of people, in my opinion. Uh, you know, as we close out, but Disney. They went from being a family uh family-centered company that cared about the customer let's send a bus to the to the uh to the airport to pick you up for your uh week at the um your week at the parks let's comp your you know certain uh park stays hey if you sign up for two parks we'll give you the other two parks for free uh hey Let's put out great stories like the actors and the writer, the writers themselves were putting out great stories only a few years ago before COVID. I mean, I'm talking fantastic movies, animated movies that did better than live action movies yeah. in the box office. And now we've seen that shift to where it's all about how can we take care of the big guy instead of the little guy. And so for me, as, as a, a person who's trying to culturally shift what the martial arts industry should be, and, and, and you know, a big part of my school is I will be training stunt people on how to do stunts, and I will be doing it very affordably and, and, and giving people the, you know, Columbia, South Carolina is where we're opening our school in Lexington, rather, and so it's the central hub of all of South Carolina. So um, people from Charlotte, North Carolina, actors who want to learn how to do stunts, uh, Charleston, the mountains, uh, down here in Augusta and Aiken, who don't want to drive two and a half hours to Atlanta can drive an hour up to Columbia and take a class once or twice a month. You know, um, a big part of what I'm trying to do is a cultural shift. And so the name of the school is the Ultimate Sport Martial Arts Academy or USMA Academy. Um, And it's going to be the best thing to hit the East Coast in the next few years. I'm very excited about it. Things have been falling into place. Uh, We're currently looking for locations, um, negotiating leases, that kind of thing. Our stuff will be out there on uh, Facebook for people to follow and Instagram, uh, USMA Academy or the Ultimate Sport Martial Arts Academy. And uh, if they want to get in touch with us, they can call us at 706, or excuse me, 803-369-7903. And we would love to be able to help actors out with their stunt training, but also we want to be able to help anyone in life who wants to have an affordable product that is ultimately, I believe everybody needs self-defense in this world. Everybody. That's why I don't do theater at the moment or I don't do uh, acting at the moment because I'm focused on this and opening this business. And then when I I was typecast, I was told, hey, when you're uh, in your 30s, call us back uh, because they said I had a a good look for action movies but that I needed to age a little bit to, (laughs) to be more believable. Cause I just I look young whenever I don't have a beard or anything. Like I look I look young, so they said you have to look for stunt movies and action movies and stuff. Call us back. So my plan is open the school and get it running really well, and then see what I can do in Atlanta and Charlotte and that kind of a thing, and get back into the acting world later on. Because then when I have people who are working for me running the school, I won't have to be there full time, so that I can then pursue things on the side as well. But again. I have to get the school open first. Yeah, and I have to prove it, it's called proof of concept. I have to prove that I can make a living, paying my. Ins- I, I I believe what co- goes around comes around. I believe that if I pay my instructors well and I give my clients a good product, that somehow it's all going to come back to me to where I will make a good living. Yeah, but it's got to be in that order. I believe it's not can't be the opposite. It Can't be money first mindset. Um, so I would tell people don't have a money first mindset. If you treat people right, you do a good product, and you work hard on set and you you don't kiss people's ass or anything work with the directors work with the writers be nice to everybody on set everyone not just the people you like everyone be nice to the dick cuz that dick might be your casting director one day be nice to that director who's yelling at everybody they might cast you in their next film be polite it's not called kissing ass it's just called you know you're working for your money yeah. That's part of your job, is to, is to socialize on set and be a, be be good at your job, but also be polite. That was the number one piece of advice my instructors gave me, was be a nice person.
0: Yeah, and I think, ultimately, that is the best place we, we could wrap up on. Because, mm-hmm. honestly, being, being not just in the industries we're talking about here, but just being a good, genuine person, for me, it feels like has started to fall by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, yeah. specifically... As much as a lot of stuff is run on the internet now, internet culture is not a polite place. It's it, it can be quite monstrous. And in terms of shifting old business models, I agree. And if there's one thing people don't know about me, I love studying business. And the one thing that for me has been a pattern is that if you take something, whether it's the entertainment industry or opening up a new business venture or something and you turn it from something that is hourly into a results only business model or a row for people who don't know where you pay people for what they do for how good they do it but not how long they do it for the work environment and the communication and just the the interactions people have with each other it's just a lot better and things get done a lot more efficiently But with all that being said, once again, I just want to give one last thank you to you, Ryan, for showing up and giving me your time today to talk to you. And I hope everybody here got something from it. But this has been the Artists and Emotions Podcast. My name is Cody Alexander Curtis. I hope that you all got something from today, which you can take with you on your own mental health journey. And I'll see you next time.